Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. What if the technologies and innovations that we've deemed low-tech, primitive, and unsophisticated could actually hold the keys to solving climate change? While we urgently work to reverse the negative impact we've had on our planet, there are communities of people who've been implementing sustainable and regenerative strategies for thousands of years. I'm talking about indigenous communities. Today, we look at radical indigenism as a movement that seeks to explore indigenous philosophies in relation to design and harness that wisdom to build a more resilient world. We talk with designer, activist, academic, and author Julia Watson, who just released her best-selling book, Low Tech, Design by Radical Indigenism. We also hear from Sam Ulvikson, principal and director of Native American Design and Planning at Cunningham. His unique perspective on designing to build and support culture will help us design with understanding and sensitivity to the healing that is happening in indigenous communities. This is episode six, Sacred Storytelling for Symbiotic Survival. For the Arab Alawar, or Madan people, their waterborne community in southern Iraq has been credited by Jews, Muslims, and Christians to be the site of the legendary Garden of Eden. Nestled beside the Tigris and Euphrates River, the 7,770 square miles of interconnected lakes, mudflats, and wetlands have also been named the Mesopotamian Venice. But what makes the Madan people truly unique is their building technology that stems from a single species of living reeds to create a collection of floating islands. These islands are called the Al-Tala and have been constructed nearly the same way for over 5,000 years. They begin by fencing off a section of these reeds or kasab and then stack the dried reeds and mud into several layers that eventually take shape as a platform. Upon this platform, the Mudif houses are built by bundling more harvested reeds to create columns that gracefully bend into arches. There's no glass, no nails, and no wood to be found in these elaborate cathedral-like structures. The lifestyle, traditions, and spiritual practices of the Madan people are held in these woven, floating vessels, and they can last up to 25 years. But the Kassab reed is more than just a construction material. It is integral to their way of life. It's food for the water buffalo that create channels for the waterways, it's flour for baking, it's rope for binding. For the Madan people, everything is connected by this symbiotic relationship with the reeds. This innovation is one of many that can be classified as an indigenous design, and it's totally worth checking out the video we have linked in our show notes to really get a look at how it's done. 
Notice that it doesn't involve the use of what we consider high-tech systems by today's standards. In fact, many would deem the Altala Islands as low-tech or unsophisticated. But Julia Watson feels differently. She challenged the definition of low-tech, especially as it relates to tribal cultures, and instead created her own term in her recently published book. So low-tech stands for local and TEK, which is traditional ecological knowledge. And it's a word that I completely made up because I was looking into these technologies that are really highly sophisticated, that are indigenous innovations, that are really symbiotic with natural systems. And I was teaching about these technologies and everyone would mistakenly call them low-tech, L-O-W-T-E-C-H, which is often sort of a a definition that means rudimentary or unsophisticated or primitive and technologies that are developed sort of in a contemporary model of industrialization. And so everyone was lumping these technologies that are human nature-based systems, but very much working with natural systems into this other category that I really didn't think it did it justice nor explained the complexity or the definition of what these were. So to understand why these indigenous technologies are considered low-tech, we have to go back in history to the Industrial Revolution, where man-made systems were deemed of higher value and use to the culture at that time. Guiding this ethos was a perception of technology that preferred the felling of forests and the extraction of Earth's resources. Society distanced itself from natural systems, favoring energy by fire, and thus deemed indigenous wisdom as primitive. Fast forward about 250 years, And we're now in the age of Anthropocene, where we're facing the costs of these types of favored technologies. Yeah, so the age of the Anthropocene is really about when we can see that human beings have sort of really impacted all ecosystems on the earth. And so the imprint of humankind is really all pervasive throughout the context of the earth. So if you're 200 years or 2,000 years into the future, you can do a bore sample through the surfaces of the earth and you'll really be able to see that layering. Okay, human beings have had this all-pervasive impact in terms of like what types of pollutants, plastics, uh, minerals, carbon dioxide would be within that layer when like, okay, they're changing all different types of systems on earth. And so the age of the Anthropocene really, you can say, started with industrialization when we really start to see that all-pervasive impact on the earth and its ecosystems. And really now it's quite announced that we're experiencing mass extinction of species and of ecosystems and really massive changes. Sustainability and climate change are top of mind for many designers as we grapple with the need to address these serious issues and explore how we can make a positive shift with our choices regarding the built environment. But forward-thinking Indigenous communities have been respecting, maintaining, and restoring our environment for thousands of years. And that responsibility stems from the wisdom of their traditional ecological knowledge that's passed down through the generations. Let's break down the TEK part of low-tech. Traditional ecological knowledge is defined as the cumulative body of knowledge that's passed down through generations of communities or peoples that live in a territory and gather information about their territory or their ecosystem for over different generations. And it's essentially not just knowledge, it's also practices, how you do things in your ecosystem and your belief system, like your worldview. So like an origin story about how you came to be in that space. 
If you've been in branding or marketing strategy for 14 seconds, you know how important a good story is. Even in the design community, the art of storytelling and how to weave it into your presentations has been a hot topic for some time. We understand the power that stories have to create an emotional experience, build empathy, and give the why behind the process or product. Mythologies are the stories that belong to a particular culture or religious tradition that deal with various aspects of the human condition. And these stories or songs reflect the times they were crafted in and are passed down for generations. It's tempting to hear the word mythology and think fables or sacred fictional tales, but they are so much deeper than that. So so mythology is the knowledge, so it contains the knowledge, and it's the way you remember to remember that knowledge. The practices like rituals and ceremonies, the mythology tells you about when they're supposed to happen and how they're supposed to happen and the essential meaning of why that should happen. And it also sort of within the mythology, it contains your worldview. That's kind of like uh, the mythology contains those particular understandings. And you know, we have a dominant cultural worldview, but there are thousands of different worldviews and the worldviews talk about how a human being relates to their natural systems, but it also talks essentially about how human beings can survive in their natural systems. I asked Julia if she might share with us a mythology from her heritage. I mean, there is kind of, but it, it might be a little bit weird. In my family of women on the Greek side, the Greek um, Egyptian, there's always been this understanding that women in the family kind of had like a power of prediction and, and understandings of were things happening in places when they weren't actually there and like sort of gifts that reading like the future. So my, my grandmother used to sort of read uh, sort of tea, um, the tea leaves at the bottom. And there's always been like, our family's all over the world now because the family was ethnically cleansed from Egypt in the 1950s when Nasser came to power. So there's family, if you're Egyptian, you could stay in Egypt. So there's one aunt in Egypt, there's another in uh, France and there's others in America and there's others in Australia. So everyone's sort of all over the world, but all of the women kind of have been sort of always talked about have these, having these understandings of being able to foretell things before they happen. I mean, there's one incident where I was sort of, you know, strange situation in my early 20s where I was caught in a really crazy electrical storm and I was in a building that actually collapsed. And my mother was nearby in her at home asleep and she woke up and she knew something had happened and she knew and she came to the place where she knew I was and she said oh you know and that happens again and again and so it's this really weird I mean in terms of like women with an essential connection that's beyond like the physical normal understandings of how reality and time and space work yes that's kind of a mythology that's part of my family. And I would say that's that's an essential understanding that I think in indigenous cultures, sometimes that's just a given that that's possible. And it's like a latent um, sort of energetic power that human beings have that they probably in normal society don't understand, ignore, don't don't focus on. And essentially it sort of gets overwritten by the sort of normative thinking. But I think somehow in my family, this is, this is a, sort of a strong and essential sort of part of, okay, this is accepted that this is just what the women in my family do.
far, we know that mythologies contain the traditional ecological knowledge that holds these gold nuggets of wisdom on how to care for and steward our planet's resources. While it may not be packaged like a formula or a white paper as our Western minds would sometimes like, we must rethink these ancient technologies and explore what they could offer us now. This unique viewpoint could teach us a thing or two about sustainability and what it looks like to connect our buildings to the landscape in a positive way. This process is discussed in Julia's book as Radical Indigenism. It's actually a term that is taken from a Cherokee woman, and she's a professor, Eva Marie Green, and she talks about radical indigenism as re-looking at different stories and mythologies and philosophies that are indigenous to really come up with new understandings, essentially for indigenous communities to re-understand how those mythologies can bring about new knowledge in the context of today. It's just no longer relevant to ignore these essential bases of knowledge. And so, I sort of brought that into the context of the built environment where I work, seeing that a lot of these technologies really are relevant to the built environment. And so calling for a relook at the knowledge, the technologies and the practices to inform how we can sort of move forward in our toolkit, informed and working with Indigenous communities as to see what else is possible for a different type of world. Speaking of our world, one of the most astonishing facts that Julia presents in her book is that 60% of the world's biodiversity has disappeared in the last 40 years. The tricky thing is that according to Charles Darwin, extinction should happen slowly. If you remember from our first episode, the microbiome that's not only inside of us but also in our surrounding environment is healthiest when it consists of good and diverse bacteria. The game is to have more good guys than bad guys, so the bad bacteria basically get snuffed out. So it only makes sense what Julia foretells about our future. It will no longer be about survival of the fittest, but survival of the most symbiotic. I think what you said about the idea of thinking about biodiversity in your own like internal space is really important. And it comes from a more theoretical understanding that ecosystems like coral reefs, coral is actually like an animal It's like an algae working together in symbiosis to create a life form. So these relationships all through nature are really essential and they're mostly ignored, for example, in monocultural cropping. For traditional ecological knowledge, they're often really well considered and understood and evolved over long periods of time, all these different types of relationships. And it's kind of within our sort of paradigm, I think, within architecture and within industrialization, we came to the conclusion that we could sort of industrialize and streamline and make efficient all these different processes that created sort of a universal approach to the way we would do things. In episode three, we discussed the life force of the assembly line process, efficiency. But we also discovered that while efficiency, organization, and compartmentalization can contribute to team success, it sometimes lacks the ability to hold space for people or processes that are multifunctional or those who don't want a one-size-fits-all approach. If we continue to favor high-tech, homogenous design that exploits our planet's resources, we won't get anywhere in terms of actually creating truly sustainable environments. If we can harness biodiversity as the foundation of our designs, we really could create something beneficial for the planet. But how do we do that? Modernity was about efficiency, the industrial process, output, universal solutions for a world that would modernize all in the same way without diversity. 
And it had this sort of idea of the universal and the singular, a singular related to a singular function and a singular performance. And so within that, you have building systems that perform singularly for load-bearing capacity and structural resilience. You might have fire, waterproofing, but these are all separate systems. They don't underpin themselves with this idea that like, okay, what's a material that can do every single one of these things that might still be living, that might still be growing, that might be regenerative within itself, that might also be carbon sequestering, that might be water cleansing, that can do all of these things and also function to be structurally resilient and thermally dynamic. What if the way we're asking our materials to perform is too narrow? Materials like wood, grass, stone, and earth are all abundant and have been a part of Earth's ecosystem for millions of years. The inherent natural properties of these materials make them infinitely renewable, and they certainly don't have a carbon footprint. Could we start thinking about materials that are intentionally biodegradable and are meant to go back to the Earth? I know you might be thinking, well, what about durability? These materials have to hold up in the commercial environment. I totally agree. But maybe we need to rethink materials like plastics and polyester and man-made products that don't degrade for a few hundred years. When you're using more sustainable materials, they're suited to your environments. They're able to do many more things. They're, so that these types of systems are born of scarcity, born of a particular environmental context. And they had to do so many more things so that there was this interplay and essential symbiotic relationship within the material, within the structure, within the infrastructure. So a system like an island technology might not just be for floating and for buoyancy upon which you can build. It'll also be cleaning. It'll also be providing habitat. It'll be doing so many more things. So I think as we move forward, using dead materials, using materials that's sort of a very universal approach, using materials that have a monofunctional capacity that needs to be rethought. And we haven't really acknowledged yet that all these technologies that I look at are essentially part of green technology and could be part of our built environment. Therefore, we haven't even gone down the pathway of thinking, well, how can we kind of start to shift our thinking towards material technology in the built environment to see what the next territory of exploration between high-tech and low-tech would even be? I want to note that the point here isn't to start building modifs and floating islands in the middle of an urban industrial landscape like Chicago or New York. But some might be honestly asking, well, how do we start to incorporate these technologies or this design philosophy into the environments around us, especially in communities that are already marked by concrete and steel? So which ecological system are you going to find in Chicago, in the center city of Chicago? Probably none. That's for somebody else to solve, and that's probably for the high tech. But there's two ways to approach that. I think that these technologies can be incredibly relevant in second or third tier cities that are going to have essentially a lot of growth in the future. And so imagining a wastewater, food producing, water cleaning, carbon sequestering, biodiverse landscape that is also a wastewater treatment system on the outskirts of a city is, you know, that's like 15 years implementable, perhaps five years if we really sped up the technology and understandings. But the idea of how do you embed symbiosis into what you're talking about, which is an industrial landscape, which I would still say like Chicago, New York, these are industrial landscapes because they're from, they're from an industrial process. They're urban 
How can you start to think about different types of systems having symbiosis? How do we start to share and create symbiotic relationships within our central city landscapes, but also in the areas where we're doing manufacturing on the outskirts of cities? How do we start to create symbiotic relationships between those processes? This was so fascinating to me. When I thought about sustainability in the context of my projects, I thought about it in terms of what materials I specified. I may have also considered natural light, passive air, efficient HVAC systems, but I haven't thought about connecting the industrial processes we already have in the built environment. This brings urban industrial landscapes into the discussion and not assuming, well, it's built already, so there's nothing we can do. This got me thinking about one of the industrial processes we use here at Kimball International. Sawdust is, of course, a natural byproduct from the furniture manufacturing process, even when the wood is ethically and sustainably sourced. But we actually collect that sawdust and repurpose it as fuel to heat our headquarters during the winter to offset the use of natural resources like gas. And while that's definitely sustainable, it's not necessarily regenerative until we package the sawdust leftovers from the heating process and serve that to local Indiana farmers who use it for animal bedding and eventually as fertilizer for their crops. So we've taken a manufacturing process that wouldn't be deemed as a natural technology necessarily, but looked at how we could mimic a closed-loop system. For more information, check out our ESG report we've linked in our show notes. How do you start to think about a factory that produces beer having some sort of correlative relationship with a factory that produces bread? Because they're both using essentially the same inputs and they probably have the same outputs. And then what's the relation to those industrial processes to the agricultural landscape that actually fed that condition? And you probably will get a fertilizer from the outputs of a specific type of industrial process there. So it's kind of really rethinking these sort of symbiotic relationships within industrial processes that can then achieve a circular or a closed loop system, which is really similar to these types of technologies. We briefly discussed closed loop systems in our last episode and how they will pave the way for life on Mars. Isn't it fascinating that what we are proposing as the way of the future is actually something that's already been long implemented in our past? We just have to make room at the table for the voices who've been pioneering these strategies all along. Otherwise, we run the risk of losing these precious insights of how to live in connection with our surroundings. I always say that the 21st century, I think, won't be remembered as the century where we lost such a significant amount of the world's biodiversity. I think we're going to remember it additionally as the century where we lost technology and it's technology that was not even realized as technology, technology that will be the most essential technology as we move into a future, and that we were just too ignorant and too biased and too sort of racist and still too colonial as a global society to understand that we were killing and erasing really essential technology this whole century. Kimball Hospitality is the leader in hospitality case goods. Trusted by the most prominent brands in the industry, Kimball Hospitality brings a best-in-class product and an all-inclusive experience to designers, buyers, and owners. Kimball Hospitality, along with D-Style, specializes in guest room and public space solutions for the entire hotel, making us your full facility provider. From design consultation, product engineering, and project management, to on-time shipments and installation support, we're there every step of the way to build long-term, meaningful relationships.
Let's be the creatives who facilitate the change in that narrative. That may mean looking at implementing things like soft architecture and moving away from concrete and steel where possible. It may mean departing from using dead materials that are monofunctional and don't serve multiple purposes in the built environment. But one thing it absolutely means is reconsidering our understanding of what a high-tech solution is and to be open to the wisdom of indigenous communities to inform what they could look like. We must be thinking about the effects of our built environment unto the seventh generation. I spoke with Sam Olbixen, director of Native American Design and Planning at Cunningham and founder of Full Circle Indigenous Planning, to understand more about this cherished design concept within indigenous communities. It's actually a really beautiful and, and really simple idea that the decisions that we make today, we have the responsibilities that what are the outcomes of this decision on that seventh generation? So thinking about if we uh, make a decision to do anything in, in our environment, what, what's the impact going to be for future generations? And it's not a whole lot deeper than that. It doesn't have to be because the beauty and simplicity of it is that we are here to protect the earth and to protect our culture and to protect the generations that are there before us because we, as Indigenous people, honor our ancestors and we honor the decisions that they made in the past. And again, seven generations ago, we were dealing with a whole lot of trauma and a whole lot of loss of land and murder and, and a lot of things that aren't really that pretty that our history books don't really teach us a whole lot about. But the, the sacrifices they made for us to be where we're at today, uh, we have the responsibility of doing the same for future gener generations. Sam takes this responsibility seriously as a member of the wider Earth Nation of Ojibwe. His understanding of sustainability and architecture was shaped by his childhood experiences. Yeah, I, well, I, I grew up in Minneapolis and I grew up in the city, which is a little different from the historical standpoint of indigenous communities because we uh, were semi-nomadic, if you want to use some anthropological terms for that. We don't necessarily speak in those terms, but I have family up on two reservations in northern Minnesota, White Earth Reservation and the Leech Lake Reservation. So I grew up going back and forth between the two. So I was able to see indigenous communities in the rural setting and the reservation setting and in the urban setting. And from that standpoint, I saw a lot of poverty. I saw a lot of different living conditions that were substandard. I also saw the juxtaposition of other communities that had some wealth and some uh, design and architecture and planning. And it really formulated my career goals to be able to think about not only architecture, but also community planning in general. Of course, when you get to school in architecture, it changes everything because you start hearing about theory, you start hearing about all these different other forces, you hear about sustainability and about energy. And so all of that really has formulated a kind of an overall goal of mine to do community development, architecture, community planning, but all in a sustainable way. The term sustainability in our industry is becoming more and more comprehensive as we include themes like social justice, wellness, and equity. We're racing against the clock to implement LEED and well-building certifications into our projects. But I want to have Sam comment on what we spoke with Julia about earlier about compartmentalizing. Could we argue that sustainability is thought of as a separate component or design requirement rather than being inherent throughout the entire design process? Traditional architecture really listened to the landscape when designing it. So this idea of sustainability as being the separate thing from design or an add-on or the thing you think of afterwards, or even if you think about it from the beginning, you're still thinking about it as something separate. 
So I've learned that architecture and indigenous mindset and community building is, it's all inherent. It's not a definition that's compartmentalized outside of design. So the ideas of sustainability really are about honoring the landscape, honoring the resources that the earth provides. And from an indigenous perspective, that there's a relationship, there's a distinct relationship between us and the landscapes. How, how can it touch the land lightly? How can it be in tune with the climate, the wind, um, the, the sun, the, the water? You know, water is such an important resource in many tribal communities. Honoring that in a way that's more cultural than civil engineering in terms of controlling it. I want to briefly take us back to the beginning of sustainability in the design space. In the 1970s, movements like environmental protection and energy efficiency paved the way for architects and designers to begin considering what was called solar architecture or ecological design at that time. By the 1980s, we saw the term sustainability begin to bubble to the surface. And in 1987, the United Nations Brundtland Commission defined sustainability as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. When the 1990s hit, the buzzword was everywhere, and creatives in the design industry were stepping up to minimize harm to the environment. But has sustainable design truly mitigated damage at the rate the destruction is currently happening? After being in place for nearly 30 years, is sustainable design making the impact we need it to? According to Architecture 2030, CO2 emissions declined 27% from 2005 to 2020 in the U.S. in the building industry, even while construction was still on the rise. We've not only made buildings more efficient from an energy standpoint, but we've incorporated more mindful materials, eliminated harmful chemicals, and put focus on wellness-based strategies. But even with all of these positive changes, it seems like we still aren't making a big enough impact to prevent or slow down climate change and environmental damage. Data suggests that we're still barreling down the road to a 3.5 degree temperature increase over the next century. So what do we do? It appears that we might need to look beyond sustainable and embrace regenerative design. So that idea of sustainability as more inherent as an indigenous way of thinking sheds the slogan of sustainability. uh, And we're all moving toward more ideas of regenerative design. So not only how can we not hurt the earth, but how can we restore it? Tribal communities have been forced onto very, very small pieces of land, oftentimes not very fertile land, oftentimes land that was left over that the colonists didn't want. So there's a kind of a revitalization of thinking about land that's so important for tribal communities because it's really difficult to get land into tribal control and to trust. So protecting this resource that gives us life and gives us community is so important beyond wanting to have a lead checklist completed. And so it's more about how do we preserve our culture and our economy and for our seventh generation. So the decisions we make now are going to really impact future generations coming forward. I've learned in my discussions with Sam and Julia that preserving culture is so very vital for communities of people to adapt to the environment they live in. Many fear that we're losing some of the defining features of certain cultures like language, dance, music, and stories. Earlier, we discussed that mythologies hold the traditional ecological knowledge and culture of an indigenous community. But Sam shared an important thing to consider when referring to these sacred stories. The language we use 
is important. So I think to call them cultural stories, to call them histories is one thing. To call them mythologies begins to create this persona that maybe they're not true, or maybe they're a little less sophisticated. Christianity as a mythology or Buddhism as a mythology, people can get offended. Wait a minute. It helps them frame things. But the fact that each culture um, all over the world has a framework of storytelling and passing down cultural knowledge through stories is incredibly important because then it ties you to culture, it ties you to place. So as designers, how can we begin to hold these stories well? And how do we honor the ideas that have been passed down through the generations of different cultures? We know that Indigenous people and their technologies deserve a seat at the table, but what happens when they are the client? And this could be asked across the board for any culture or people group that you're designing for. My first guess was that you would approach the work with a lot of research to familiarize and educate yourself as much as you can. But I was wrong. Research can be termed as an anthropological type of term. So uh, to look at it from a research standpoint means that you're coming in from the outside and you're looking at things from an outsider's perspective. And what I know and I relearn every time I work with a different tribal community is that everyone is different and every tribal community has its own voice and its own traditions, its own landscape, its own history, its own political and economic struggle. So it's really coming into each community and helping design with them and not for them and not at them. There's uh, often professionals who come in and they act as the experts from the outside coming to tell what this community should do. And I take it a completely opposite approach is that every community inherently knows what it needs. And as a designer and the different skill sets that I bring, I can help uncover that with them and I can help be their voice or their pen or whatever it is that helps them express their own values through their community building or architecture. Not coming in as the expert, but as the facilitator of the ideas and solutions that the community is bringing to the table, valuing their input over our own ideas. Sounds really different, right? We're sought after as designers, architects, and creatives for our professional opinions. But what if we could look at the process differently, understanding that the client may in fact know more about their needs than we do? So having you know, thorough community engagement is important. And again, not community engagement from I'm going to facilitate you, but really helping people come together to learn the language of design, to, to help foster discussions that talk about high-level goals. Anywhere from, you know, cultural revival, community building, how can whatever project we're working on support the overall goals of the community? And that's where meaning really comes in, because with children and elders and community leaders, tribal leaders, when they all come together, that collective voice begins to talk about the overall goals of a community. And that's what we're trying to uncover here. Again, not as the expert, but as the facilitator of a conversation that can help define cultural goals. And then we then move into cultural strategies and design, and then we move into implementations of that. So it's an iterative approach of listening and listening authentically, not just to hear what I want to hear, but to really hear what uh, the community needs and to do my best to help them uncover the design solution that allows whatever building type it is or community planning to help their community flourish. Wow. That's a huge paradigm shift in the way we can approach design. But even when we take off our expert hat and humbly move to a facilitator role, there are still a lot of things to consider and be aware of when designing for Indigenous communities. Like I said before, every tribal community is different. 
and there are different ways that tribal communities are receptive to professionals coming in and working with them. There has been a lot of professional trauma in our communities, as well as colonization, the loss of land, the change in our food structure that has you know, devastated our health, the change in our economic structure that has devastated our economies. So these issues aren't usually what we see on design projects because they're all about, all right, we have a building, let's design it, let's do a great job, let's make it beautiful, let's make it functional. But in the context of designing for most tribal communities, there's a lot of healing involved and there's a lot of those overall traumas that we have to recognize and acknowledge as we're designing. So it's stepping back to listen, to understand also the beauty of the culture because most cultures are in, a, in some form of revitalization. And how do we take traditional architectures? How do we take a traditional dance or language or any part of culture that can somehow inform a design solution that can provide an inspiration? There are so many lenses that we need to design through as an industry, and it seems like we're adding new ones all the time. It used to be that you had lenses like form, function, and aesthetics, and now you have sustainability, equity, justice, neurodivergence, and trauma, just to name a few of the many considerations we need to be looking at while designing. And these are necessary and good for us to have in our toolkit as we continue to expand our knowledge on how to design for the individual. Sam brings up a major point that trauma is often embedded in many disadvantaged and marginalized communities, and we must be sensitive to the healing that might be taking place in our midst. Maybe my overall call to action would be to discard the status quo with the events of this year, the pandemic, the uprising for George Floyd. If we design our communities and if we design our social structures and our economic and political structures on the past, we're going to make the same mistakes. So, and again, this is not just related to design, but it's related to how everything is related and works together from development to community building to you know, just our daily lives. So we need to think about equity in design. We need to think about regenerative design. We need to think about that from a standpoint of not only the earth or resources or energy, but in culture and in community. And I think that whatever the new normal is, we're not going back to the, the old normal. So let's capitalize and let's seize this moment to create something new. Earlier in the episode, I discussed some of the many and new diverse lenses we're acquiring as designers to make our built environment more effective at serving the individual. I truly believe that looking through the lens of indigenous design could give us clues to solving the climate crisis before us. By understanding that these ancient stories passed down through generations contain ecological wisdom, we may discover that they directly apply to our current projects, to our material and furniture selections. And even if the opportunity for a direct symbiotic connection to the land isn't an available option because an urban environment already exists, how can we look to partner up with other industrial processes and share resources to create more of a closed loop system? We must also remember that culture ties us to place and we must think of creative ways to preserve and honor unique cultural expressions in the built environment, but not without shedding our preconceived ideas of what that might look like. Let's take off our expert hats and make space for the ancient knowledge to educate us on how to care for and steward our planet for the seventh generation.
This episode is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks so much to Julia Watson and Sam Ulbickson for chatting with us today. Also, thank you to Kimball Hospitality for being our show sponsor. For more information, check out our Instagram at the Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.